What is Elon Musk playing at? The world's richest man seems to think he's a geopolitical influencer. Rupert Murdoch and the art of succession. What comes next for the elderly media baron and his family? And, lest we forget, the lettuce head that outlasted the UK's latest Prime Minister. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. The world's richest man is turning into one of its loudest voices. Not content with manufacturing cars, generating energy, getting into space travel, Elon Musk is in the midst of a $44 billion takeover of Twitter and now considers himself a geopolitical player. Musk has business interests in Russia. He has proposed a way out of the war in Ukraine that is in line with what Moscow wants. That did not go down well in Kiev. Then Musk threatened to cut Ukrainians off from his satellite network, Starlink, denying them and their armed forces critically important access to the Internet. He has also injected himself into the dispute between China, where his company is heavily invested, and Taiwan. Does the world really need an erratic billionaire with a sizable ego and zero geopolitical expertise messing with conflicts in which they have a personal financial stake? Our starting point this week is Elon Musk. In some ways, Elon Musk is a unique billionaire. Uh, I know of no other billionaires who have mastered public attention, mastered the ability to have people talk about him. I mean, clearly he's motivated by this deep desire to matter. He wants to get involved in all of these areas where he has no expertise. And it's very dangerous. And whether it's Twitter back in April or his argument with Ukraine over the future of Starlink, it all seems like we're living in Elon Musk's world. And I think that's how he likes it. Why would you want to talk to me? Because you are a dude, my friend. But his penchant for simply stirring up controversy is not helping if he does really want to help the world and help vulnerable people like those in Ukraine. Elon Musk is the richest person on the planet. Most of his social capital comes from his more than 100 million followers hanging on his every tweet. For Ukrainians, Musk's persistent posting about his on-again, off-again plan to buy Twitter or trolling his critics are a sideshow in a far more serious story because they rely on Musk's satellite internet provider, Starlink, to stay connected, informed. Journalists depend on it to get the story from the war zone out to the world. And for Ukraine's military forces, Starlink is a weapon that gives them a decided advantage on the battlefield. Traditionally, you will get access to the internet through cables that connect countries under our oceans. Starlink is something different, and it's a satellite internet connection. Lots of these satellites are in low Earth orbit, something like 550 kilometers above our Earth's surface. And it allows people who don't have that traditional internet connection to still connect to the internet, because this is a lifeline for people in order to communicate some of the horrors that are going on in Ukraine right now. Starlink is absolutely essential because it has allowed communication that's been secure amongst the Ukrainian troops 
unlike the Russian troops that have used open radio communication at times, uh, which is opening up to attacks. Ukraine has been able to use modern technologies and modern communication, which has allowed to execute very complex missions behind lines, something the Russians are simply not able to do at this point. There's no mincing words. Starlink has been a heroic service for many Ukrainians. But the larger point is we don't have enough transparency into Starlink's finances, into what their arrangements are with the U.S. or any other government, or into exactly who uh, Elon Musk is speaking with, given that he's at the helm of this company that is all of a sudden providing essential services to a vulnerable population uh, that's really at risk. Just how vulnerable Ukrainians are became clear earlier this month when Musk tweeted out a proposed solution to the conflict, one suspiciously along the lines of the Kremlin's. A Ukrainian diplomat responded to Musk on Twitter using the most undiplomatic language imaginable. Musk then tweeted that making Starlink available to Ukrainians for free was costing his company $20 million a month, implying that unless others, including the Pentagon, stepped up with the money, Ukrainians and their armed forces could be cut off. Since then, both the US and the EU have signaled they may provide the funding. Ukrainians remain connected through Starlink for now. This speaks to a larger problem with how we depend on private infrastructure for crucial public services. It might say something about Musk's own character, but in the long term, I think we have much bigger issues to concern ourselves about when it comes to providing internet service in these crucial areas. Why was he trying to shake the Ukrainians for this essential service? If we look at the history of uh, Elon Musk corporations, they've historically sought government handouts from the US. And other corporations have made lots of money on this war, they've been receiving US government contracts, and he thought it was just that his corporation would also be compensated. Speculating as to Musk's motivations is uh, a losing battle. I think uh, we need to focus on why any billionaire seems to be making foreign policy for the US or any other government, why we as a society are letting one private, rather opaque company become such an essential partner of this vulnerable population in Ukraine. There are more satellite internet providers out there than Starlink, um, not to mention you know, all the other uh, innovative technologies that can get people connected. Please welcome Elon to the stage. For years now, Elon Musk has been speaking out on multiple topics, such as his contention that social media platforms require less intervention and more freedom of speech. His forays into the complex world of geopolitics, usually by way of his Twitter feed, are a more recent development. Just a week after reportedly speaking with Vladimir Putin, then echoing Moscow's idea of what a peace agreement in Ukraine should consist of, he weighed in on another dispute that pits East versus West, China and Taiwan. He told the Financial Times that Taiwan, which declared independence in 1949, should be turned into a special administrative zone of China and come under Beijing's control. The Chinese ambassador to the US took to Twitter to thank Musk. Not that his tweet got a lot of likes in China, the platform is banned there. But Musk has a lot riding in the country. He is increasingly reliant on its manufacturing sector and has his eyes on the world's biggest consumer market. Elon Musk 
clearly considers himself a geopolitical player, entering a world in which he has little experience to offer, just interests to protect. Really, China and Taiwan is the big game for him because he has big interests in Tesla in China, and China is a massive market, and therefore he wants to keep the Chinese Communist Party on his side. That's what is motivating him in making these public outbursts. It's ultimately bottom line business for him. I don't think he's being particularly greedy or ambitious when he dances with Vladimir Putin or claims to dance with Vladimir Putin. He's just feeding his own ego. And it's deeply worrisome because it's not done out of any profound insight or knowledge. It's done purely on a whim. He runs this major company, SpaceX, which has engineers and scientists. And yet he, as the boss, is an unstable person who doesn't actually know what's going on. That's a very dangerous situation. Whenever Elon Musk wants to get the word out, Twitter remains his platform of choice. Six months ago, when he announced his $44 billion bid to buy the company, he indicated that he would loosen its content moderation and platforming policies. Three months later, he threatened to pull his offer off the table, only to commit to it once again a few weeks ago. <laughs> Why the interest in the first place? Elon Musk has got the followers, 100 million plus. How would taking ownership of Twitter benefit a billionaire who already seems to have it all. It's something that he realizes adds to his persona. You know, for modern businessmen, being able to dominate the news waves then allows you to, to really have a lot of capital. Not only economic capital, it's social capital. And through that social capital, you're able to build an image, to build your own uh, uh, persona, which others then identify with. He wants to control the public sphere in which we communicate, in which we converse. He has significant concerns about the site and the way that it's run, who it decides to platform and who it doesn't. And I think that is why he is so keen to take it over, is he likes power and he knows the power of Twitter because he has more than 100 million people on there who hang ultimately on his every word. Musk's Twitter battle is a race to the bottom. Everyone is losing on the way down. Again, you know, as uh, begs those questions about who's in control of these essential communications platforms. Why are, you know, these singular billionaires making policy and uh, advancing agendas rather than vibrant civil societies, strong institutions, and uh, folks who believe in public infrastructure. Unfortunately, it's the right to freedom of expression and robust public discourse that's really getting the short end of the stick. The world's most famous media mogul, Rupert Murdoch, seems to be on the verge of a major business move. This one is not just about the bottom line, it's more about the line of succession. Minakshi Ravi has the details. Richard, those in the know say that Rupert Murdoch is about to combine the two halves of his media empire, Fox Corp, parent company of the right-wing American outlet Fox News, and News Corp, which owns publications like The Times and The Sun in the UK, and The New York Post and The Wall Street Journal in the US. Bringing the companies under one roof will create a mega media corporation that can better compete for online advertising and subscriptions with tech giants like Google, Amazon, and Netflix. This isn't a done deal yet. Fox Corp makes money, but its business brand is toxic, and many News Corp shareholders may not want it in their portfolio. 
At 91, succession planning is something Rupert Murdoch has already been doing for decades. And this plan would clear the way for his eldest son, Lachlan Murdoch, to eventually take over the entire media empire. He already heads Fox Corp and is co-chair at News Corp. Ideologically, Lachlan Murdoch is known to be like the typical Fox News viewer. Right-wing, more than a little conspiracist, and triggered by so-called political wokeness. Under his watch, Fox News has sometimes provided a mainstream platform for some extremist views from the fringes of the American right. As of tonight, tens of millions of Americans suspect this election was stolen from them. If this deal does go through and Lachlan Murdoch's influence grows across News Corp, prepare to see some editorial changes, not to be confused with improvements, at outlets like The Wall Street Journal. Thanks, Mina. The United Kingdom is in a state of political disarray, with the ruling Conservative Party melting down, Prime Minister Liz Truss resigning after just 44 days in office, and the wider population dealing with a cost-of-living crunch. A rare wave of work stoppages has put trade unions and the media's treatment of them into the spotlight. As successive rail strikes have taken place, influential right-wing newspapers, including those owned by Rupert Murdoch, have sided with the government, blaming the union for travel disruptions. That set the stage for a string of bruising broadcast interviews with the union's leader, Mick Lynch. But Lynch has flipped the script, putting journalists on the defensive over their habitual anti-union approach. Combative exchanges have since gone viral, shifting public opinion the union's way, exposing the kind of hostility on the media's part that has long undermined the UK's working classes. The Listening Post's Daniel Turi now on the coverage of labour issues in the British media. More than 100,000 Royal Mail postal workers have gone on strike in a dispute over pay. We're in an unprecedented moment in British politics. For the first time in 40 years, we're having a significant burst of inflation. Workers at the country's largest container shipping port, Felixstowe, have joined the list of those on strike for more. Prices are rising by something like 10%, 12%, 13% a year. Barristers have been taking action for over a month, escalating now with a vote for all-out action. And we've been through something like 15 years of repeated squeezes on people's wages. It's the biggest train strike in over three decades. And into this moment, trade unions suddenly have this huge central significance. At the forefront of the strike sweeping across Britain is the Rail, Maritime and Transport Union, the RMT. In June, its members walked out for the sixth time this year over pay and planned job cuts. For three days, much of the country's metro and rail network was at a standstill. And in the news coverage, the RMT was feeling the heat. For a lot of our viewers, you are the face of the stress, the disruption that they're going to face. But when the union's leader, Mick Lynch, hit the TV studios, the tables began to turn. Mick Lynch is someone who is prepared to take on the media in a way that, that we don't often see. However much the journalists try to attack him, he can stand up to it. Are you or are you not a Marxist? Because if you are a Marxist, then you're into revolution and into bringing down capitalism. <laughs> Richard, you do come up with the most remarkable twaddle sometimes. His technique is very much to question the questioner. What does it look like the minor strike? <laughs> What no, it doesn't, Mr. Lynch, and I'm just asking, I'm just to clarify. I'm just trying to clarify. It's very rare for 
a trade union leader um, to be able to stand up to media pressure. The way a TV interview used to go with a trade union leader is a trade union leader would turn up in the studio and would basically be bullied by a TV presenter. You see the marginalised role of trade unions in many areas of life. You're a dinosaur. Well, you know, at the end of the day, uh, that was around for a long while. You watch Mick Lynch do a TV interview. The TV presenter might have one or two facts, and Mick Lynch knows the book on, on, on his own dispute. But, interestingly, what he's doing is he's talking directly past the interviewer to the public. Because people can't take it anymore. We've got people who are, who are doing full-time jobs who are having to take state benefits and use food banks. That is a national disgrace. He's making clear that the dispute has got something to do with everyone sat at home watching this interview. It's the sort of message that really has struck a chord because because of inflation, there are a lot of frightened people in this country and they see at last, here's a union leader who can stand up for them in the media and they like it. By the time the rail strike was ending and Mick Lynch was done sparring with the media, something highly unusual had happened. Public opinion had swung behind the RMT, but it wasn't enough to force the government and the rail companies it owns to offer a deal. Industrial disputes take time, and in the past, hostile news coverage has helped to break strikes much larger than the RMTs. Good evening. A critical week for the miners' strike. Will it flare up into an all-out war between the unions and the government? Or will it fizzle out? As... In the 1980s, the Conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher privatised British industries and took on trade unions that stood in her way. The coal miners' union, led by Arthur Scargill, was among the largest and most militant. And when they went on strike, Thatcher made an example of them. In the year-long nationwide dispute that followed, the media would play a pivotal role, starting with Thatcher's allies in the press. The trade unions were operating in the 1980s against a backcloth of an unsympathetic press, and that's putting it mildly. The interests of the owners of the newspapers was themselves to limit the power of the trade unions. Before the 1980s, the, the print unions decided whether or not the newspapers came out, and the proprietors resented that. The miners' strike was defined by battles outside coal works between strikers trying to shut down production and the police. Police officers committed the worst of the violence, sometimes unprovoked. But it was the violence of Scargill strikers that dominated the headlines and produced a powerful media narrative of the miners as an angry mob and Scargill as a public enemy. What was so exceptional about the miners' strike was that we had a government that understood how to use the media. If you can use uh, uh, the newspapers to set up the agenda, this will also be reflected in what appears on radio and television. After two hours, the police were tired of being pushed and pelted with house bricks. The pickets knew what to expect. They'd been warned it could turn nasty, and it did. These were the strikers who were threatening law and order. 
These were the strikers who were the Marxists who wanted to bring down the government of the day. There was no doubt that Scargill was demonised to a degree that no other union leader has in my lifetime. To a certain extent, Scargill, Arthur Scargill, was his own worst enemy. To hell with an industry that can't pay high wages. He cast himself in a, in a very aggressive role, and that enabled the press to make him out as some sort of devil incarnate who was there to try to take the country down. I look back as a broadcaster, I was with the BBC, and I really realised that, although I was inadvertent, I'd become almost a cheerleader for Mrs Thatcher because I was following her agenda. She was determined to get half the miners back at work and then she could declare victory, which she did. And it was done on the back of the news media. Britain's trade unions still live in the shadow cast by the Thatcher years. Fenced in by some of the strictest anti-strike laws in Europe, their membership has declined by half since their peak in the late 70s. The journalists who used to cover them, industrial correspondents, have all but vanished too replaced by business reporters, or generalists like the presenters Mick Lynch has faced, who are often better at generating heat for ratings and clicks than they are at shedding light. It makes me laugh, honestly, that you have the hood as your profile pic, because that's a man who wreaked havoc on the world. Well, it makes me laugh that your level of journalism has descended so far that you can't think of any other question rather than a, a thing about... I'm here at the picket line for the latest rail strike in central London. It's the RMT's seventh strike so far this year. And I've come here to ask Mick Lynch how he sees the British media today compared to the days of Arthur Scargill. Well, back in those days, we had the uh, press, me the uh, newspaper media, and we had a couple of channels, BBC and ITV. But what we've got now is a, is a flourishing of outlets. There's lots of different digital channels, but also the social media channels, and it allows trade unionists to have more of a say. Whether it gets across or not is another way, because the written media is still a very important uh, aspect in this country. So you now have a lot more public support for your cause than you did at the time of the last strike. Do you secretly want to thank those TV presenters? Well, there's been a turn. I think what happens to those journalists, they weren't with it because they regurgitate the press releases that they get and a, an editorial line. It's changed, actually. In the last few weeks, some of those mainstream journalists have shown a bit more respect, frankly, and have been a bit more cynical about what they've been told by the government. And so we've seen a bit of a change of attitude, but we still have to work hard to find our voice. Get your members motivated. Mick Lynch's handling of the UK media has given the country's trade unions a boost as they continue their strikes. But like Arthur Scargill and the miners, Lynch, the RMT and the rest of Britain's unions face a Conservative government that is refusing to back down and has threatened another anti-union crackdown. It sets the stage for another conflict, one in which the media will once again be participants as well as observers. And finally, just how much of a failure was the now former British Prime Minister Liz Truss? In her 44 days in the job before she resigned, she saw her economic plans shredded. Ministers were hired and fired far too quickly for journalists to keep up, and the British pound tanked against other currencies. Even the UK's right-wing tabloids that typically do the bidding of and help elect Conservative governments had had enough. So we're leaving you now with a collection of tabloid front pages, starting with some from a few years ago, backing various conservative leaders, then moving on to Truss's chaotic time at 10 Downing Street, 
One paper was actually comparing trusts to a head of lettuce, wondering which would prove to have a longer shelf life. We now know the answer to that question. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party.